I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. Finally, it's election day, and there's no one better to talk to on this day than Michael Steele, the former chairman of the Republican Party. This marks Steele's sixth visit to the podcast. As always, I ask him why he's still a Republican, especially since he endorsed Democrat Joe Biden for president. And we talk about the state of the campaign for the White House and the Senate. But the bulk of our conversation revolved around the power of racism in America on this election and why Steele says, I don't trust the white folk. Find out why right now. Michael Steele, welcome back to the podcast. It would not be election day without you here. I'm going to ask you the same question I always ask you, but instead of at the end of doing it at the beginning, are you still a Republican? Absolutely. Yes. Even more so. And why? Because I've really appreciated the number of Republicans who have served inside this administration, who recently left the administration to come out and say that this is not us, this is not what republicanism is, it's not what conservatism is. They've agreed to stand with us in the center of the town square to declare our independence of Trumpism and our resiliency and fight against it. And I appreciate that because I know it's not easy. It's not an easy thing for them to do. So it tells me that there is a vibrancy left inside the party. And I think that we will find more and more of that vibrancy in the weeks and months ahead. Now, that doesn't mean there won't be a fight. There will be a fight. Trumpism does not leave its host that easily. And we know that. I've called for political enema. And I think the party's going to need one. And I'm very happy to administer it. So obviously, I ask you that question all the time. This time, I've asked the question because you joined the Lincoln Project, which has become you know, a hero to a lot of people within the Democratic Party and certainly a lot of people who don't like the president because it has been unsparing in its criticism, to put it lightly. So let's talk about the Lincoln Project and why you decided to go from being part of the establishment of the Republican Party as the former chairman of the Republican National Committee to joining an outfit that's doing everything to defeat the standard bearer of the party right now, President Trump. It wasn't as hard a transition as one may think, because if you followed any part of my political career here in the D.C. area, you realize that the establishment was not something you would use to describe me. (laughs) Um, Your very own newspaper (laughs) and I have had those battles. So for me, it wasn't that big a move because I've always argued against a lot of the very things that ticked off a lot of the then Tea Party, now Trump kind of conservatism, because it's not really born out of anything that's anchored to some of the core things that the parties articulated. It's just this really annoyed annoyance with the system the way it is. And so a lot of us have always kind of spoken to that and saw how it would ravage the base in many respects. So that transition was not that hard for me to move off of it, but it was made even easier by the fact that I watched how profoundly indifferent the party was to its own existence, how profoundly indifferent it was to its own value system, and how profoundly indifferent it was to the men and women who have served honorably and well from president 
to the door knocker on a campaign, carrying that banner, raising high that GOP flag, only to have it pissed on by Donald Trump and those who enabled him inside the party. So for me, that moment, joining the pirate ship, as we like to call it, over at the Lincoln Project was easy because it was hanging out with kindred spirit who understood what this fight was about. This was more than just, oh, Trump, Trump is bad for America. This was, there's a lot of stuff that's going on right now in America that is bad for America. And we wanted to show that and speak to it. And the party labels didn't matter. So a Susan Collins and a Lindsey Graham were going to get just as much of a hit as a Donald Trump or a Stephen Miller. So it's important to understand what this is about and certainly what it is not about. It is about, first and foremost, the country. It has always been that and will always be that. And as I think Steve Schmidt and Reed Galen and Rick Wilson and others have noted, when we get beyond this cycle, which we hope will, will result in the election of Joe Biden, then we will begin to dismantle the deconstruction of the administrative state that was put in place by Steve Bannon and, and Reince Priebus on behalf of this president and maybe bury it and salt the earth with it where it's buried so that we don't have to go down this road again. And yet here we are at a moment where the president still has a 50-50 shot of being reelected president of the United States. I mean, from your vantage point, just as a political tactician, what would it say to you about where we are as a country and who we are as a people if President Trump is reelected? And that's the core point. I'm glad you raised it because at the end of the day, all of the machinations of politics aside, this ultimately is about how a people see themselves and how a people see their future and how a people regard the values and the principles and the ideals of a fledgling nation. We are still a fledgling nation when you consider the great nations of the world who've been around for five, six times, seven times as long as we have, who've weathered storms <laughs> far worse than we've weathered. But, you know, we have that history, and yet knowing that history, we still fall into some of those same traps and those same trappings. And it does speak a lot, Jonathan, about how we see ourselves. We have, in some respect, become a nation of victims. And we are so angry at other that we then project back on ourselves a victimhood, meaning, well, I can't because of them. I don't get because of them. My son and my children won't because of them. Well, okay, let's start with that. <laughs> that's not what this country's about. There's not one slave or immigrant who's come to these shores who said that, well, I can't because of the Native Americans. <laughs> you just made it work, right? I mean, that's one way of putting it. Right, right. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> I mean, uh, yeah. But my, my yeah. point, my point is that that attitude is not something that has been a part of this nation's 
uh, mindset. The, our psyche. This is new. This is new is what you're saying. And we, I mean, historians will probably disagree on certain aspects of it, but I think in this sense, it really is new where, to your point, almost 50% of the country feels that way. And they project that onto this one man who could give a rat's ass about them. And at the end of the day, Donald Trump doesn't care if you wake up tomorrow or go to bed tonight, whether you have food on your table, whether you have COVID or you don't, he doesn't care. It's totally outside of his orbit of concern. And yet people project on him as if he's so interested in them. And when I hear people say, well, I support Donald Trump because he's like me, that tells me more about you than it does, excuse me, Donald Trump. No one can see me. You can see me. But... My eyebrows shot up, and as they always do, when I hear someone say that he represents them or he's like me, I'm like, are you for real? And they're for real, Steele, they're for real. They are for real, real, absolutely. And I look, I'm not gonna be grudging that, but I gotta ask, what the hell was going on in your life, in your family's history, that you now feel that way? I mean, particularly if you wait, because I'm, I'm sorry, because, you know, your cards, while it may have been tough, they have been dealt differently than for me and for Jonathan and for our Hispanic friends and neighbors. I get really curious about it, but it is an issue and it could lead to Donald Trump getting reelected. As I've said to you before, Jonathan, I don't trust the white vote. I don't trust it. And I don't trust it because at the end of the day, it is very self-serving. And I'm glad you're going down this route. I want you to keep going because I was going to ask you, and I've said this on air with you before, and I'm going to keep saying it until this election is over. This campaign, this election is more than just a race between Trump and Biden. It is a contest between American democracy and white supremacy. And anyone who does not think that white supremacy is powerful, they're fooling themselves because, you know, it's on the ballot. And in the words of Dave Chappelle, in, in reforming them, whiteness is a hell of a drug. It's a hell of a drug. And I was talking to this one uh, young man recently, white fella, and he, of course, was taking exception to my characterizations and interpretations. And I said, you know what the difference between you and my son is? You have a whole network out there because of the color of your skin that will open a door for you. He's got a whole network out there that doesn't even exist because of the color of his skin. So there are very few doors he can go, well, you're a former lieutenant governor. I said, yeah, and they pull my ass over just like they pull his over. <laughs> and then what? <laughs> I mean, then what? So, you know, th there is this disconnect uh, in understanding and appreciating how this system has been constructed from the very beginning and the impact that this system has on men in particular of color. I've appreciated, just as a quick sidebar, and I'm sure you'll get into it, the comments that you've made, Roland Martin and other brothers out there who have spoken to this thing going on in the black men's community around Oh yeah. Trump. I don't know if you've had a chance to listen to Brittany Cooper last week's episode, but she went in and went deep, but keep going. Loved it. So, you know, there's also in that construct a seed that is, that is a legitimate seed that's been planted there where, again, 
those men are not immune to the same level of influence that a white man or a white woman would be under their circumstances regarding Trump. That's what makes him the P.T. Barnum of this age. You know, he speaks to people in a way in which he draws the men, right? And he draws them in with the bling and the bright shining objects and, and the misdirection and, you know, the, the guy who seems like he's just so outside the system. Well, there's a reason he's outside the system. <laughs> don't get it twisted. There's a reason why you don't let criminals in your home willingly. There's a reason why you don't fall for Ponzi schemes, right? So understand the reason why he's outside the system, yet people still embrace it. Right. But I was going to say, he's outside the system. He's like, you know, people don't let criminals into their homes willingly. But in this case, he was let inside the system by the owners of the house. And so now, I mean, who knows? I'm knocking on every piece of wood I can find that the American people boot him out. But the fact that we're even having this discussion of the possibility that he could stay in because of people like Vice President Pence, who said that he thinks it's an insult to say that there's structural racism, or people like Senator Collins of Maine, who would not say that there is structural racism. There's not structural racism in Maine. Really? So, okay, I don't live in Maine. You don't live in Maine. All right, so I'm not going to question what was on the street in Maine. All right, fine. Senator, if you say that there's no structural racism in Maine, I have to take your word of that because that's where you live. That's what you represent. But as United States Senator, not just the Senator from Maine, your answer should have been, while there may be very little, if any, structural racism in Maine, I know it exists every place else. I know it exists. And you can tick off some places because they're well known, right? It's not mm -hmm. like it's a big secret. But the fact that you could not do that speaks to the whole white influence, culture, supremacy, all of that stuff plays in shaping how people respond. And there's a price to pay for speaking against interest, right? And I paid the price politically at the RNC because I always spoke against the interest of the white boys who ran the place or thought they could run the place while I was there. Fine. Say what you want about me. Every time you say that, I just say, 63 house seats, baby. You couldn't do what I did. Right. You took back the house. I took back the house and all y'all worked against my ass. Every last single MF and one of you. And you know you did, right? <laughs> but I got on a bus, right? The last damn thing I wanted to do and went out and corralled the vote for y'all dumbass. All right, I digress. <laughs> can, <laughs> have you lost your train of thought? Because I can, I can put the no, bus no, no, on the But okay. the fact is there is a price to pay for speaking against the system. And in a moment so obvious for you, so easily handed to you, you still flinch. You still flinch. You're like, no, I can't. No, no. White, uh, you know, white supremacy, racism, systemic. No, no, no. Can't go there. And we're not going to be able to turn that corner, Jonathan, until we force the country to do it. 
And that's what the murder of George Floyd initiated, the murder of Breonna Taylor has initiated, and the murder of countless black men and women have initiated. So when someone throws up in my face, well, look at all the shootings in Chicago, and look at all the shootings in Baltimore, I'm like, take that bullshit and put it someplace else, because all that is is deflection. Because, yes, it's part of the problem, too. But that's not government action. When the cops engage in my community, that's government action. And so as a citizen, I'm trying to deal with brothers from killing each other here on the streets because y'all wind up putting a whole boatload of crack and other stuff in the neighborhood. Okay, we can have that conversation, right? Because remember, we don't own guns. <laughs> <laughs> how, how we get Glocks in our community? You know how much a Glock costs? Most kids would rather have a cell phone, all right? So let's, let's be honest about what's real on the street. So the fact of the matter is you have all of these things that sort of feed into these narratives about what's going on in the Black community. So getting back on the Black man train, when Black men then come back around and sort of wrap into this Trump world, I'm just going, okay, I understand what some of that is, but then again, the rest of it I don't. And I think Congressman Clyburn, did you see his interview on Fox News? No, what did he do? What did he say? You got to watch this interview in which, you know, the host was, was talking about, you know, voter suppression and all this other stuff. And he, he had the corrector is like, she said, well, but you've got drop boxes in South Carolina. He said, we do? Why do we have drop boxes in South Carolina? We don't have drop boxes in South Carolina. He said, because the legislature didn't want us to have drop boxes because they knew black people were going to vote. They didn't want us to have drop boxes. And then, she was, and then I guess they got in her ear and they were, oh, yeah, I guess I stand corrected. <laughs> so he pushed back against the narrative. But then he goes on and he talks about black men voting for Donald Trump. And he says, he said, I am the son of a black woman. I am married to a black woman. And I do not understand how the son of a black woman can support a man who refers to black women as dogs. I was like, well, okay, check please. <laughs> it's true. Like, how do you come back from that? Come back. So that's like Ted Cruzism, right? Call my wife mm -hmm. ugly. You know, tell, tell the world my daddy was in the plot to assassinate the president of the United States and you got my vote. I'll support you. What? Seriously? Come on. Jeez. Let me get you on something before we get into the real fun conversation. And that is what's going to happen. But I have to get your comments on what Jared Kushner said. When he said that, you know, well, African-Americans can only be as successful as they want to be. Because we don't want to be successful. We only want to be successful when a white man tells us. That's what that shit is. You know what? Sometimes, Jonathan, you just let the white man speak for himself. Because there ain't nothing you can say to stupid like that. It is, it is, it is the button on ignorance. It is the button on this, you know suffocating self-indulgence is the button on his own arrogance to think that we can only be successful if we want to be successful. I look around this country every damn day and I see black success because we built this ish. 
We built this, all right? Jared, when you go to see your father-in-law in the Oval Office, know the Negro built that room, built that house, all right? So don't tell me about success. We want to be successful, all right? We are successful in sports. We're successful in entertainment. We're successful in politics. We're successful on Wall Street. We're successful in anything we touch. So this idea that we need your help, and if we refuse your help, then we just won't be successful. Kiss my butt. Never mind. Okay. Steal. <laughs> See. <laughs> Oh, man. Okay, you know what? Of course, everything you're saying, I'm over here, you know, high-fiving, fist-pumping, amen and in my head. But what would you say to listeners who are white and listening to what you're saying who might be like, why is he attacking me? Why is he attacking white people? I'm not attacking white people. Look, because let's be honest. As we say in the neighborhood, they're white folks and then they're white people. So when you hear a Jared Kushner comment, everybody in the barbershop goes, white people, right? Because we that's, that's, you know, that's standing in the schoolhouse doorstep. That's putting jelly beans at a voting booth and telling us to count, white people, right? When we see folks out there standing, getting beat up with us, trying to help change the things that we're trying to change, that's white folks. That's something closer to home. You know, so it, after, you know, yeah, we're, we can be complicated in our communication. <laughs> but you, you never have to know where we're coming from. So, I mean, look, I'm not trying to offend white folks, but I'm not telling you something you don't already know, that you've not already internalized. Come on, don't push this back on me. And don't push this back on Jonathan or any other black person. At what point when I tell you I've had enough of you hitting me upside my damn head, do you think, well, why would you say that? Because I'm white? No, because you hit me upside my damn head. So understand that and understand that the person, white or otherwise, that comes in and stops someone from hitting upside my damn head, Okay, I'm going to hang. This is all right. This is good. I refer to a lot of white folks as brother because they are because they get it. I, you know, I know when I'm in a pinch, they'll be there for me. And when they're in a pinch, I'll be there for them. That's how this country is supposed to work. That's what the ideals on the paper, the documents that everybody signed off on say, right? So now we're living in a time where we got some a-holes out there who are trying to turn all of this upside down who are trying to create an America that never existed, all right? Because even back in the 1950s, I can tell you a whole lot of white folks who weren't too happy about that, and you know black folks weren't too happy about it. But, you know, create make America great again, all right? America is great. It is great because I'm here, because you're here, because we can do whatever our dreams allow us to do. Right, but we also recognize that there's some people who kind of block those dreams from time to time, and so we got to clear that out. And that's what this election process is about: is about clearing out the stuff that block our dreams. And Donald Trump is the biggest block to the American dream we have had in my lifetime. Okay, so then let's talk about the election. And at the risk of making this episode obsolete, 
let's talk about some states. Does Joe Biden actually have a chance of winning North Carolina? Yes. And you see that in the fact, unless there is reverse ticket splitting where they vote for Donald Trump and vote Tillis out as the U.S. senator, and I just don't see that. Typically, it's the other way around, where they would vote against the presidential and, and keep the senator, the incumbent senator. North Carolina is very much in play right now. Jonathan, we're sitting here talking about an election in which Texas could potentially I still am not convinced that Trump wins Texas, but I think that margin is going to scare the crap out of the Republicans. So you actually think that Joe Biden could win Texas? It's not far-fetched. Yeah, because of what the Democrats have been able to do with voter registration and with voter turnout, particularly among more independent voters. And here's the other thing I think people need to get their head around. Because a lot of folks are talking about Republicans registered, but don't assume that that's all Donald Trump vote. I think you need to understand that while the significant portion of it may be, you just need to pull off one, two, three percent of that. Just as Trump is looking to pull an extra two percent, three percent of the black male vote to get get it into double digits. Now, I still don't think Donald Trump gets double digit black people right? The mm-hmm. black vote. I don't think it's double digit. He'll get a, a nice chunk of the black male vote, but that's going to get swamped by what black women are doing. I mean, black women are the power vote in this cycle and will be in some very, very important states like Michigan, Ohio, North Carolina, South Carolina, poor Lindsey. Is he going to lose? Do you think Lindsey Graham's going to lose? If the black vote does what I've heard it's doing there, I don't know. That's $58 million that has been put to incredibly good use in South Carolina to draw that race to dead even. And they're polling. There are a couple of polls that shows Lindsey down by one or up by one. That is going to be a very tough nut to crack in terms of, of winning for Lindsey. Incumbency has its advantages, but he's done some things that soured a lot of white suburban South Carolinians. And the question is, can he pull them back in some form or fashion? This is in Pennsylvania where, you know, Joe Biden's blunder on fracking can kind of, you know, put some extra steam in Trump's engine. South Carolina is a different bird altogether. So then you don't think that the, the sudden opening up of a Supreme Court seat because of the death of Justice Ginsburg was a gift in essence, to Lindsey Graham because it gave him an opportunity to fulfill as chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee another Supreme Court seat. I think it added some fresh life back to his lifeline. My question is, is it enough at this stage? I I just don't think it is. The reason is that Jamie Harrison has done a very effective job of, of demonstrating hypocrisy. At the end of the day, people don't like hypocrites. I mean, they just don't. So, you know, I I tell you, Jonathan, you have my word. And then literally six months later, circumstances are such that I go back on that. Regardless of what you think of the circumstances, you still, you're like, but but you told me you were going to be there. You were going to do this. So 
you know, I get the circumstances, but you told me you were going to. So there is that element there. And they've been very, very, the Harrison campaign has been very, very effective in its ads and in, in, in the debates in demonstrating that. So the question becomes one of a balance. Do I balance the value of a Supreme Court pick more than I value the word of the United States senator regarding that Supreme Court pick? And that's goes to how we started the conversation, my friend. That speaks volumes about us and what we value in this election. So there's no danger of Donald Trump losing South Carolina. But what signal would it send if Trump wins South Carolina, but Lindsey Graham loses his Senate seat? Does that have implications for what could happen for Democrats in other states? like Georgia. Yeah, then that goes to what I was talking about, a race where the people split their vote. They vote Trump in, but they vote out the Republican senator. Mm. And yeah, so I don't see, put it this way, if Joe Biden wins South Carolina, he wins all 50 states. (laughs) 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 Okay, so just just put that on the record. So I don't see that. What I do see is South Carolina embracing Trump because it's Trump. But I also see South Carolinians not embracing Lindsey Graham because he's Lindsey Graham. They know the Lindsey Graham with John McCain, and they now mm-hmm. see the Lindsey Graham with Donald Trump. And that hypocrisy, that, that bifurcation of, of his loyalties, I don't think wears well with a lot of South Carolinians. And the reason we know that, Jonathan, because he's tied in a state in which he should be 10 points ahead. Yeah, it's not a cute look. Let's go to Georgia, which is a state where there are two Senate races, and there's also talk that Joe Biden could win Georgia. So I'm glad you raised Georgia. And this is where I'm going to push up against what I just said about South Carolina, but you'll understand where I'm going. So Georgia is where North Carolina and Virginia were. If you go back 1990s, Virginia was one of the reddest states. And I remember at that time I was a county chairman and I noticed that what was happening was its politics was changing because its demographics were changing. People were moving to the state and they were bringing their politics in and people within the party never really did anything about that. They never got in front of it, right? So here we are today, Virginia is a solidly blue state. Right. And, you know, you can color it purple from time to time, but recent elections have shown that it's wearing blue more than anything else. That trend line has also moved down into North Carolina, where Republicans are now having to compete to hold seats that were non-competitive 10 years ago. Georgia is the next on that particular block in that neighborhood, where the demographics are are such that the, the politics are changing as the urban centers are becoming more sophisticated. White and Black are moving into these centers and they bring their politics with them. You have people from the North moving South because they want a slower pace, they want a more family-oriented community, et cetera, et cetera, whatever their reasoning, business, whatever. I know a lot of guys when I graduated from law school moved to North Carolina and that was 1991 and look at it today. It's a state that is dramatically different from what it was in the 1990s. So Georgia, like Texas, like South Carolina, 
are all seeing this political demographic shift. And what that means is as the demography changes, so will the politics. And if you are a political party that's been on the ground as the Democrats have been in Georgia, North Carolina, Texas, South Carolina, building very steadily, winning local races, retraining the electorate to actually vote for something or someone other than republicanism. You're now seeing that play out. I said two years ago in the, in the 18 cycle that this would be the last election in which Republicans enjoyed the benefit of Texas. Texas will be a battleground state in 2024. Guaranteed, it will be a battleground state. And whichever center seat is up at that time will likely get lost, will likely lose that seat. Georgia, the work that has been done on the ground since 2018 in the debacle of that race, Stacey Abrams has done a phenomenal job of, of educating and informing the populace of Georgia. And now they take balloting seriously, not that they haven't before, but they really are tuned in into what voter suppression looks like, et cetera. And I think you'll see the benefit in this election where potentially both Senate seats, which are in play, Democrats have a chance of getting at least one of them. And if not both, I mean, Kelly Loeffler, I don't know how she holds the seat. All right. So listening to you, Joe Biden is going to take North Carolina, take Georgia. That's, now that's one, Jonathan, where if the voters decide that they, really, that they really like Ossoff and they really like the Democratic candidates, that's one that could actually upsell. In other words, that vote for the U.S. Senate could actually help Joe Biden in the presidential, where you have people voting. Like to help him win the state. Right. There's a reason why Trump and his team have gone to Georgia. He shouldn't even be in Georgia. He shouldn't be in Georgia. He shouldn't be in Georgia. He shouldn't be in Iowa. He shouldn't be in any of these states. He should be hunkered down in just three states where he won by 78,000 votes. But he's out in Arizona. He's out and he's down in Florida. He's in Ohio. And there's a reason for that, because that vote has moved off of him. And in states like Georgia, where if people really like the, the senatorial candidates and they're tied or Trump, you could see a, a massive upset there. You've got Obama in Georgia right now. So, I mean, that's one of those things that, again, tells you a lot about where the state of play is for Democrats. No conversation about the presidential election would be complete without talking about Florida. Can Joe Biden win Florida? I think the Black and Hispanic vote is too weak in the state. I was talking with James Carville about this, and he thinks it's done. He thinks Florida this time goes with Joe. I'm just not convinced because it's Florida. And the information coming out of Florida has been very true about the lack of resonance in certain communities the Biden campaign has in certain communities in Florida. And I would hope, I can, I can only hope, but I think that the practical part of my brain, the political part of my brain says, I don't think Florida falls. Now, if Florida falls for Joe, then we're done. <laughs> right. The, the rest of the map is, is easy for Joe Biden at that point. If Florida goes to Trump, then as every place that I've looked has pretty much predicted it would, 
he still has like three or four or five different routes that he can get to 270. Donald Trump is still kind of locked into really one route. Last question, and that is with regard to the president and what he has threatened to do on election night once all the polls are closed and challenging the counting of ballots that have been legally cast and challenging states whose laws say that those ballots must be counted up until a certain point by law after election day. Just your thoughts as a former party chairman, as a Republican, as an American, do you think that the lambs of the party who have been painfully silent all the way through this point will finally find their voices and speak up if the president throws us into a constitutional crisis because he doesn't want to accept the will of the American people if it comes to that. So let's start at the beginning of that question all the way to the end. First off, I I want your audience to know that the president is full of crap when he says that he will declare uh, a win at a certain point when, you know, where he's up in, in, the, in the electoral college without all the ballots being counted. He has no control nor say of what happens in 50 states and seven territories. He has no control or, or say over that. The race will be called when all, all validly cast and accounted for votes are, are reconciled within the respective electoral systems, period. So both Joe Biden and Donald Trump can sit back and relax and just wait until the states count. Three states will not, at least three states, I believe it's just three though, will, will not even begin to count their ballots, those absentee ballots and vote by mail ballots until the day of the election. So by virtue of their state law, they're not going to, Pennsylvania is not going to have a winner to declare for at least a day because they won't start counting the millions of ballots that have come in until Tuesday, right? Plus dealing with same day voting. So this idea that, you know, he will just get up and pronounce himself the winner and say that anything else is, is fraudulent is bull. So let me get this straight. If, and this is to all the little Trumpians out there who, who buy this, this, this sour milk. You mean to tell me that if Joe Biden wins, that's because of fraud. But if Donald Trump wins, it isn't? Because the, the argument they're making is the only way Donald Trump loses is if there's fraud. No. The way Donald Trump loses is when the American people vote his ass out of office. And you are summarily required at that time to pack your ish up and get out of the White House. That's how this works. This is not complicated mathematics for someone who went to Wharton to figure out. So, you know, I, 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 that's that. In terms of where, where we play this out and how this plays out, with the Senate, and it will be the Senate Republican leadership that will will have to be engaged here. The expectation of the American people and our Constitution is, 
if need be, you get in a and you get in a black sedan and you take your ass down to sixteen hundred Pennsylvania Avenue and you go into the Oval Office and tell the president it's done. <laughs> it's done. All right. Because if you don't do that, I suspect there may be recall elections all across this country. <laughs> recalling, recalling your behind <laughs> back home. But no, I just think I just think they they'll have to step into that moment, and I think they would I think they would want to because, as you know from your own sources and and your own reporting, with great frustration, there are a lot of these folks who want this long national nightmare to end. True. They want this over as much as I do and you do and a lot of Americans do. So they're not gonna they're not gonna want to engage in anything that would prolong that in any way. And and so my my expectation is should it come to a, a moment, they will they will step into that moment and do what they need to do to impress upon the president that it is over. Michael Steele former chairman of the Republican National Committee. Thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. It's a tradition. When there's an election, you got to be here. Well, it's always a pleasure. You make it fun. It's always a good conversation. And I hope that, you know, Americans appreciate now more than ever how important their franchise is and exercise it accordingly. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Capehart.